This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My guest today, happy to introduce him. He's a colleague of mine. He's been practicing law for over a decade. He's a real estate lawyer, uh, done land development. He's a veteran. Please help me welcome my guest, Jonathan Gilmore. Jonathan, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Ferd, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be on my first podcast. <laughs> you're, I, I actually believe you. I think most people say that and they're lying. I think, I think you're excited. So um, welcome to the show for sure. Tell us a little more about your background. I obviously know you uh, work with you all the time. We're both working from home today, so I don't, didn't see you today, but um, that's the COVID world we live in, I guess. But yeah, uh, tell us a little more about your background and we'll jump into today's topic. Yeah, well, I've... Uh, been a uh, been an attorney for 12 years, uh, primarily in the Casey metro area, some in Colorado. Uh, I've been in the real estate area, um, specializing in real estate for about 10 years, like you said. Prior to working for you, uh, I worked for a large publicly traded home builder in Denver. I did land deals across the country, over $100 million in deals at any given time. Um, and uh, back in private practice now, so uh, extremely excited to be doing that and, uh, and working with you. So the MHP side is uh, extremely exciting to me. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you. It's been, it's been fun. And I know you did a ton of transaction volume when you were at the last publicly traded shop. So that, that helps a ton here, uh, of late we've been doing, uh, instead of being publicly traded, we're doing one-off. You've been doing a lot of stuff on syndications, private placement memorandums, some fund work, most recently, we did one that was pretty complicated, so I thought it'd be a good one to talk to with our guests today for our audience. It's the combination of using a 1031 exchange in a syndication, which has to really happen via a tenant in common structure. And we learned about these ticks back in law school. I don't see them a lot, um, the general tick, but maybe walk us through what's a general tick and what's a general 1031 we don't have to cover syndication because I've covered that ad nauseum in other episodes, but then we'll combine the three and it becomes a fairly complicated structure. Um, one that you definitely need competent legal counsel in uh, and, you know, qualified intermediary, you want your CPA involved or a tax attorney. Um, these are not for the faint of heart, but for syndicators, we just did it on our last syndication yeah. and we had an investor who wanted to put in, you know, nearly half a million dollars but it was coming out of 1031. He's like, can you make it work? So we made it work. It made it, made it a lot more work, but we would not have done it for a $20,000 investor or probably a $50,000 investor. Um, but, you know, over time, it be struck like anything becomes easier. So um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, your expertise in this and, and these, in these three areas. Yeah. Well, so you just kind of jumped to it a little bit with regards to syndicators. They're looking for access to capital. Um, not all capital comes from, you know, just cash. And so you've got investors who are, they've got, you know, they've sold property. They have, you know, put it into an exchange account. They've only got 45 days. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but um, to identify replacement property. So as a syndicator, you want access to capital, but as an investor, uh, you want to be able to 
put your money uh, in a deal that makes sense. Um, and it's, you know, can be increasingly more difficult to find those, those deals that make sense. Um, just from a, a, not just from a structure standpoint, but from, Hey, you know, I've got, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to put in, but this one deal is only $90,000. So I don't want to have, you know, pay capital gains on a certain amount. So I want to find that right, uh, that right deal. And so um, being able to 1031 into a tick style investment is uh, allows you to be able to really almost like carve out your percentage interest. And so the deal works better. So um, I guess really with regards to 1031s for those listeners who aren't familiar with that is you know, sec- it's, it actually refers to a section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, which is you know, it's kind of considered one of the most generous provisions of the code because uh, it creates an exception to the rule that you know, the entire amount of gain or loss from the sale of a property um, <clears throat> can, you know, you can defer the gain. Uh, in other words, you can preserve that basis, uh, basis in a new property or a replacement property. So, um, but in order to be able to defer that gain, the replacement property needs to be of equal or greater value. And then there's a timing component. Um, you need to find replacement property. By the way, that replacement property needs to be like kind or similar property. You have to find that within, you have to uh, identify that property within 45 days of closing on your relinquished property or with, and then you have to close on that within 180 days of uh, selling your, your relinquished property. And so that's kind of the, the, the baseline of a 1031, just an overview of what that is. And, and so just, just yeah. for our audience too, I want to jump in. Some people call it trading into a property or trading up. Basically, if you buy a property for a hundred thousand and you sell it for 200,000, you have a gain. Realistically, you probably have a gain of more than a hundred thousand because you probably depreciated the original 100 That's right. downward. So your tax basis could be 80, for example, in which case your gain is 120, even though your profit is only 100. So in this example, you have to buy something of at least as big as 200,000. You can, you can buy something less, you could buy 190, um, but you could have some taxable impact or be called boot, or you could, you could trade into a $201,000 property, but take 20,000 off the table and put it in your pocket. You have to pay tax on that 20,000 that's called boot. So the, the, the goal of all tax planning is to keep more money in the family's pocket and out of uncle Sam's pocket and the 1031 is one of the best vehicles to do it. Um, and I remember, you probably remember from law school, our professor had this one joke. He says, what's the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? 10 years in prison. That's right. right? Yep. So you don't want to do tax evasion. That's a big no-no. But tax avoidance, you absolutely should, stri- should strive for. And the 1031 investment vehicle, which you may- I don't know if you mentioned this, but that those proceeds in my hypothetical here, the $200,000 in sales proceeds, um, those need to be held by a qualified intermediary, which is often like a title company or spe- kind of like a special bank. And then it basically means I don't get to touch the money. Uh, we won't get into all the particulars of, you know, which fees or which costs can be uh, basis or not. But that's just, as you've said there, that's 1031 in a nutshell. And as a syndicator, which I am, I want to bring in as much investor capital as I can. And sometimes the only liquid capital, the only capital somebody has is a 1031 money. And then sometimes people want to invest in my deal as opposed to their own deal, because my deal is passive for them. It's active for me, but it's passive for them. So 
I can bring they can sell an actively managed apartment complex, for example, and that's going to be similar to a mobile home park because they're both real estate. It's just that's light kind right. enough. Real estate to real estate, it'd be a farm to a mobile home park, um, and they can jump into my deal in a passive manner. And normally, in in my deal, if I'm a GP, I pay the limited partners, the LPs, a preferred return. And, and I get either acquisition fees or asset management fees or a, a promote structure. And I know that that's going to be crucial as we look at this tick structure as well. So there's 1031. We've talked about the impetus for wanting to take on $1031. So tell us about tick in general and tell us how tick blends into a syndication model. That's right. Well, so the, the model that you just talked about and your kind of your traditional syndication model, you've got a gen, you know, you, you're acting as the general partner and then you bring in limited partners into a partnership, you know, like an investor LLC, that investor LLC will then own 100% of a land LLC, which then in turn owns 100% of the real property. When you have a tick investor come in, a tick, a tenant in common interest is an, it's, it's an interest in the property, an undivided interest in the property, but a percentage in the property. So if you, if I come, if John Doe comes in, he's got a, uh, <clears throat> he wants to buy, put $100,000 in, into a, an investment, and he's got 1031 money, and you've got a million dollar overall acquisition. He brings in $100,000. He gets actually 10% of the real property in that deal. And then the investor LLC that owns the land LLC, the land LLC will own, it also own a tick or tenant in common interest in the remaining 90%. Now, that's how that works. And so the difference is, and I'll tell you why this is important. The difference is, is that as opposed to coming in as a limited partner in the partnership, a tick investor, in order to maintain that 1031 uh, uh, characterization, has to come in and actually own the real property. And the reason is, is because it, of like kind. We talked about what a 1031 like kind exchange, it's talking about the type of the, the, type of the property, which is investment property. You can't in, invest your... You can't relinquish real property and then come in and invest it as a partner. A partnership interest by the, by the code is not deemed real property. So that's why this matters, right? We're bringing money in and these 1031 investors are coming in only on the land side. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes, makes sense to me. It's clear as mud. <laughs> so, well, so and your investor LLC, you've got, you know, the GP, I, I refer to as G GP. It's, you know, they're the class A unit holders. And then the limited partners are the class B unit holders, right? So then you have this, you know, tick investment investment syndication, right? Where you now have this third party who's also, you know, a, an investor, right? But not a limited partner investor. Because as I just said, we can't trade the limited partnership uh, for property, right? Or vice versa. So when you, when you end up structuring it this way, you have to have, um, you have to have certain, uh, factors that are met. And I'm talking about these factors that the IRS has said, there's 15 factors. They, they sent out a, a private letter or excuse me, a revenue procedure. It's a 2002-22, I believe, where they came out and they said, look, we're going to, it's not really a safe harbor per, per se, but they, the IRS came out and said, hey, look, we're going to uh, consider uh, hearing a private, giving you a private letter ruling if you meet these 15 factors. And these 15 factors are designed to essentially avoid this deal structure, this tick investment deal structure is looking like a partnership. Let, let me break that down a little bit as well with, with less legalese. I know you know what these terms mean, safe harbor, 
rev proc, PLR, all this yeah. kind of stuff, but you know, your tax want, right? For the, for the average investor, what it means is what's the purpose of a 1031? The purpose of 1031 is to avoid paying capital gains taxes and by trading into a bigger, better asset or bigger, more valuable asset. The syndication, the purpose is I get to be a limited partner, passive investor in somebody else's deal. The tick structure is how I, is the mechanism, the vehicle of how I can 1031 into somebody else's deal as a limited partner. But because I cannot own a partnership interest, I must own a piece of the land. That's why the tick structure works. Now, the goal in tax avoidance is to not have to pay taxes. So you, this, if this vehicle, the structure is not appropriate, the IRS is going to come, they're going to blow it up. They're going to say, nice try, guys, you're paying taxes. You probably have to pay penalties and interest on top of that. So this revenue procedure was the IRS saying, look, this is not a get out of jail free card like a safe harbor might be, but it's pretty close. If you follow these 15 steps, which by the way are pretty tough to follow in most syndications, um, they'd have to break the mold a little bit um, or change the norm. And if you follow these 15 factors, you're probably going to be okay. And the right. reality is the federal government does not have a lot of manpower out there auditing these. Now, some of the states like California, New York may audit them from a state taxation perspective. Typically, your qualified intermediary, as we've seen with our clients, is not going to take an opinion as it pertains to the taxable nature or lack thereof of a tick 1031 syndication, which the syndication is in the form right. of a private placement memorandum to comply with SEC rules. So we're getting all kinds of alphabet soup. It's complicated as heck. Um, but you can follow these 15 rules. I don't think we need to go over all of them because a lot of them no. are just kind of plain Jane. Let's go over the, the key ones. And I'm going to, I'm going to be the GP and you're going to be the, you're going to be the lawyer here. Right. So as a GP, what do I want? I want my fees. Jonathan, That's right. Can I do this and get my normal fees? And then also Jonathan, can I do this and not get my LPs, my limited partners, my investors? Can I get, can I keep them from getting stung by the IRS? How do we, is there a win-win or is there a, a hybrid that has some, uh, some changes and some, and some timing impacts as well? Well, and I think the other option or the other item to talk about is, you know, a lot of, um, you know, these, these, these 15 factors, this is like the perfect scenario, right? For the IRS, but they're not necessarily a perfect scenario for the GP as you're going to find out. Um, and they're not the perfect scenario uh, for lenders. And a lot of, uh, I'd say, variance from these factors is lender-driven. And so that's key to remember. And we'll talk about uh, not just these factors, but also what do we do moving forward after we get this structure set up, closing occurs, the money's in, you know, kind of what's next for this tick investment. And a lot of that, when I say what's next, is you may have lenders, either the lender at closing or maybe, you know, a refi lender several years down the road, who said, you know, we're not comfortable with this tick structure, but for the time being to get the 1031 money in, we want to, you know, make sure we, we uh, address these factors as best as possible. One of the factors has to deal with payments to the sponsor. Uh, it says, you know, except as otherwise specified, the amount of payment to the sponsor for the acquisition of a co-ownership interest must reflect fair market value and may not depend on the income or profits of the property. So you're talking about a gross profit fee. So asset management fees, acquisition fees at closing, all of these are okay, but they need to be based on gross income and not income after expenses. So, you know, that's, that's important to remember, but you also have to just, I mean, you jumped right to the stuff as a GP that you want, right? Which is, which are the fees. 
let's talk about timing and let's, let me jump forward a little bit. Let's talk about once the deal closes and you have this, um, the structure in place. First of all, <clears throat> one of the other factors is uh, 35 or less tenant and common owners. That's not really a factor in most of these deals. Most lenders are not comfortable with more than say five tick investment, uh, tick investors. Um, but most in lenders aren't comfortable with the tick investment uh, uh, structure for at least for a long term. And so what we have to end up looking at is, okay, we've got this tick set in place. GP, you want your fees. But at some point, what we're going to do is we're going to roll up this tick interest into the actual GPLP investor LLC. And, we can and, why, and, why, and why do we do that? I know there's a few key reasons why we roll it up. Um, you mentioned lender, but from a fees, from a managerial, from authority, you know, what are some of the other, are those the key reasons? Yeah, or- yeah. well, authority is one of it. And we can talk about the tick agreement and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, you, you, I, I bring it up when we talk about fees, because as a GP, you want these fees, a lot of which are based on income after expenses, right? And so uh, the ones that are, you have to think, well, how long are we going to have this structure in place? Now, really conservative, you want to have a, this tick structure in place for two years. Uh, I've had investors show me pitch decks where the roll-up has occurred the day after closing. Uh, I would think that that's probably not what the IRS wants to see for uh, 1031 uh, exchange treatment in, in a tick interest, tick investment. Um, realistically, you see six months to a year as far as the holding period before this tick investor is rolled up. Essentially, what we're saying is the GP uh, utilizes some trigger and mechanism within the operating documents and says, hey, I want to consolidate this tick investor interest into as basically you're you're just converting them to an LP um, after a certain amount of time. And by converting them to an LP, I'm making them like the other LPs. That's right. Like I have in my regular syndications, a traditional syndication model. So then I can start to, you know, among other things, have control. And among other things, have my normal fee structure. Because you mentioned earlier that as a, a GP and a tick syndication model, I can charge acquisition fees and I can charge asset management fees. Those are both gross dollar amounts, but I cannot charge things based on profit, which typically you've got a pref. So like an eight pref that goes to the limited partners and then some, that's a hurdle. And then after that hurdle, you've got a split, say 30 to the GP, 70 to the LP, but it, I can't do the 30, 70 in a tick model because I'm basically taking fees against my co-interest co-partner and by rolling them up. Now they're just a regular LP again and I can do it. And obviously you're doing this eyes wide open. Both parties have agreed. It's all calculated in as the the business plan projections, the economics, the legal structure. It's just the, the, the tick is the way we get the 1031 money in the door. The roll up is the way we, uh, convert it to a typical LP interest. Is that, is that basically it in layman's terms? Yeah, it's it in layman's terms. And you know, if you want to address the economic impact of, of, of fees, when the tick investor is a limited partner, you know, you can build those out in your operating docs. Meaning, meaning I can not charge fees for that two year period, but then I'm going to, instead of charging, say 30% pref, I'm going to charge 31% forever instead to try to balance it out. I, th- I think that's one way you can structure it. And, and I think that, you know, you're, when, you, when I, I mentioned two years being the most conservative, you're, you're, and oftentimes you're talking about a matter of months. So maybe it just be that, you know, your economic, the way that you address it economically is you don't address it economically. So 
Well, um, and, and for yeah, and then for a GP also, I mean, I'm I'm willing to take less of the cut if it's more likely I can raise the money or I can raise more money because I can do more deals or bigger deals. So part of that just could be like, look, I'm not taking fees for a while, but that's what it took in order to get you know ten million dollars of ten thirty one money in the in the program. Yeah, and and you know you're you know to to charge a fee you know to the tick investor you know at closing for instance you know you you don't want to fleece them either right so you want to right. you want to have this balance where they're happy to you know put their money in the investment they trust you as a syndicator and and they're really excited about the deal um, and you're not going to you know overexert yourself <laughs> charging fees at closing because you know there's going to be a roll up that happens at some point in the future and it could be the the uh, you know near future in terms of the in terms of the overall deal, if you're holding property for five to 10 years and in six to nine to even 12 months, it's rolled up, essentially the economic effect and the economic impact is minimal. And so I think that's, that's important to, to keep in mind. So. Got it. What else from an authority standpoint? I know typically the reason a lot of people don't like doing ticks is you have to have unanimous approval, which means you, I can't, if I'm the 10 and you're the 90, I can't, contract away my 10% vote very easily, right? I mean, I'm right. I'm supposed to be independent, undivided interest, all that. How does that come into play here? I mean, because I'm, I'm thinking on a normal syndication, the general partner doesn't want that, right? General partner wants right. the LPs to fall in line, you know, within with the confines of the offering memorandum and the and the PPM and the operating agreement. That's right. Well, you know, there's a there's an agreement called the it's a co-ownership agreement or tenant in common agreement agreement, excuse me, that will, that can lay out certain, it's basically the agreement between the tick investors, right? So you've got a tenant common investor and you've got the land LLC. That's the agreement that governs their relationship between each other. And the IRS and one of the factors, they, they allow this, they say, this is okay. Um, I was looking at a tick agreement uh, last week, actually. Um, and basically what it said was, Hey, look, you know, we realize that you're, there's, you're not supposed to have restrictions on transferability, but we also have this whole separate set of lending documents and those lending documents actually control. Now I didn't actually have the opportunity in this deal to look at the lending documents, but I'm guessing that there was a restriction of transferability for that tick investor in those documents. And that's a way that the lender can control their, you know, um, their portfolio, if you will. Uh, the tick agreement, um, it, it's allowed, it's, it's okay. The IRS uh, said this is okay. It can have, you know, restrictions on transferability as, in so much as the rights of first refusal, rights of first offers, things that are built into where the GP, the, the investment LLC can control, you know, not control per se, but have a say in the direction of that tick investor. So in other words, if the tick investor wants to, you know, alienate its interest and sell, uh, then then the GP can consolidate that interest and it's laid out in the tick agreement. So, and it's the go between, like I said, so. Okay. It's also not to get this even more complicated uh, when a tick investor, um, you know, let's say they, they have, you know, their, the, the entity that they had that sold the relinquished property when they want to come into the next inv investment uh, in the replacement property as a tick owner, they can actually form a, a 100, a drop down LLC where that tick investor owns 100% uh, of that LLC. And that LLC can be manager managed. And oftentimes what you'll see is the manager of that drop down 100% LLC is the GP. <clears throat> and as such can take a fee from that as well. But 
that manager also then can govern at least a form of, I guess, control over the direction of that tick interest. Sounds like lots of paperwork. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, like I said, it's a way to handle, you know, major decision approval over to the GP manager. And oftentimes, like I said, lenders will want to see this anyway. They'll want to make sure that there's this, you're going to basically for, for purposes of 1031 satisfying, you know, satisfying the 15 factors, you're going to want to uh, be able to hold out for as long as possible. Um, and oftentimes the lenders just won't allow you to do that. I, I was speaking with a qualified intermediary just a couple of weeks back. And he said, basically, you know, every one of these deals he's seen recently are, are lender driven. I mean, so, I mean, it makes sense, right? You got to do what the lender wants. And then there's like, I was joking, you know, it's expensive, right? But there's a reason you do this, right? You do it because it allows you to bring in more capital, makes your deal better. So yeah. is there an expense to it? Yeah. Is, is there a lot of paper to it? Yeah. Is, is it complicated? Yeah. That's why you need a lot. That's why you need a lot of paper. That's why you need to do it right. That's why your lender's going to want to do it right. That's why your most LPs that are coming in, these are going to be sophisticated parties. This is not, you're, you're barely accredited investor. You know, you're, yeah. you're, surgeon who's just got out of med school two years ago happens to make 201,000 a year and qualify, but doesn't know anything about a financial uh, or real estate transaction. These are going to typically be people who've already successfully sold other real estate investments and are sophisticated enough to want to double down on the tax savings by trading up on a depreciated basis of their previous asset. So they're, they're going to want to make sure that the document is, is bulletproof and they're going to, and they're not going to mind uh, going through the extra complexity if it helps achieve their goals. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And they oftentimes, or almost all the time have their own tax advisor. And so, you know, when we have these factors and, and, and either I'm either representing the investor or I'm, you know, the tick investor, or oftentimes I'm like with you, I'm, you know, representing the GP and, uh, we have to figure out where either do the lender requirements or otherwise, where we have to kind of, walk the, we have to thread the needle, if you will, with these factors. And I've, I've brought out, a, you know, I brought up a few, but the reality of it is, is that you're probably not going to hit all of them. You just don't want to diverge too far away uh, from what those factors laid out. I mean, and you mentioned it earlier. Uh, these are, you know, it's an unlikely event of an audit, but you still want to make sure that you structure these deals as close to meeting all these factors as you can. Makes sense. Anything else we need to cover? Anything, anything we're missing? I think that's, I think that's probably it. Um, you know, there's a couple other factors that we could, we could touch on, but really it comes down for you from a GP standpoint, which is, you know, being able to get the money in the deal and being in, in addition to getting the money in the deal, but also being able to structure it and then eventually being able to roll it up. What's the mechanism for the roll up? Um, well, it can be an offer kind of component within I've, I've seen them a couple different ways. You can actually, you know, have a form of, you know, offer in the tick agreement that provides for some sort of valuation, fair market valuation of the interest, uh, that both parties agree to. And then that's exercised. I've seen deals before where the, um, 
it's more of a trigger mechanism that the GP controls. And so there's a, you know, deed that gets recorded um, and then the roll up occurs and, and there's a look back for the tick investor uh, when they become a limited partner uh, where, you know, it basically just says, Hey, look, this is what your market value of your interest was when you came in as a tick investor. Now you are a limited partner. And here is what the economic effect is that. And, and essentially it's to be treated as the other limited, limited partners. Makes sense. All right, Jonathan, how can people, how can people find you and provide your info? Here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, you do, you want me to give out my phone number? It's 913-216-6269. It's Jonathan at kcrelaw.com. That's kcrelaw.com. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.